I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Cedric Nikkei's of 11 Madison Park, the wine director at that esteemed restaurant. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Very nice to see you. So you're actually from Belgium. You were born in Belgium. I was. Uh, my family moved to the U.S. when I was five, and I would go kind of back and forth between my parents and my grandparents a couple months a year in Belgium until I was 17 or, or so. What were your grandparents like? Uh, very different. You know, my maternal grandparents were city people. They lived in Brussels. My grandfather was a professor. It's really interesting where like sort of my background and my brother's background comes from. My grandfather was a super successful physics professor, but he was also really involved in wine and was a big wine collector. He was uh, a member of the Belgium Sommelier organization of some nature and was involved in like testing and education in general, just a big wine collector. Is that true? He was a wine guy back then? Oh, yeah, yeah. Huge wine guy. Burgundy, in particular, had a relationship with Armand Rousseau and like loved Burgundy in particular, but wine in general and had like an amazing wine collection. So there's that side of him. And then there's the science side. And my brother and I are like exact descendants of him, me, the wine guy. And my brother is literally a rocket scientist. Really? Yeah, that's yeah. what he's up to these he works, days? works for NASA. Okay, at least he's on our side. Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. like he's, you know, North Korea or... No, 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 Iran. yeah, yeah. Still, still, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Saving the world, not ruining it. <laughs> yeah. He defected a while ago. We right. haven't heard from him for years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really cool to, you know, hear my mom talk about that and, like, how we're, like, direct descendants from my grandfather is, is really interesting. How does she feel about that? I think pretty good. You know, I think my career path was probably a little bit not as fun for them to watch as my brother's, who, you know, my brother is, you know, PhD in something at Caltech, right to NASA. And I did not do that. I, you know, I floundered around a little bit trying to figure out what to do with my life. A lot of bartending, a lot of, I would say, unproductive parts of my life, but I think important to where I am now. I, I think those learning moments and those moments that maybe I didn't see the impact that it would have down the road have been super impactful to what I'm able to do now. And, you know, a lot of it is just being able to focus in you know, my 20s where totally unfocused and totally, you know, me having fun and just kind of figuring out my life in that way. And now that I'm a little bit older, I focus so much on my career, my personal life with my wife and my family, and, and I don't have a lot of outside distractions, which I think is a huge benefit for me. So it's almost kind of like you're making up for lost time. It's making up for lost time for sure. And, and my drive definitely comes from that without question. But it's also like I partied a ton and I don't need, I don't, go out and like the sommelier circuit, which is, which is amazing and super fun. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of sommeliers do that. And it's also know, a little incestuous though. Very much so, you know, and, but I don't, I don't, I've had a great social life. Now I need to have a great career. And they're, to me, they can be very separate. So when did that start to change for you? Right around the recession. Uh, the hardest part of, of my professional and personal life, I got laid off from a catering company in Jersey in April of 2009. Uh, sorry if you're listening to this, mom and dad, you don't know this. <laughs> oh um, so so I kind of, I, I left the restaurant industry kind of in general, just trying to figure it out. I'd never, I was living in New Jersey. I'd been there for about a year, moved specifically to work for this company. You know, it, it didn't work out for a number of reasons, not the least of which, you know, it was April 2008. Um, 
shit started to get real. Yeah, yeah. You know, we had a lot of financial clients within the company. The company, I think, is still great and doing well, but, you know, things, the company had expanded very quickly and then contracted. Uh, and I was the first contraction. Um, so you're a trendsetter. Yeah, yeah, totally, for sure. Yeah, that was totally the goal. Um, yeah, I did, a, I did a bunch of stuff that was, isn't relevant. You know, I, I was not involved in the restaurant industry and tried to figure it out. And then come, It wasn't a goal for you originally. Right. Well, it, it was, and I got laid off, and then it wasn't. And then I tried to figure out some other thing that I could be good at, and that never materialized. So I realized that maybe I should stick to what I'm good at. Um, what had you gone to school for? History. Yeah. I, was a, I was a history major, did some graduate work as well. And it actually, that's actually great for the wine thing. I mean, it, you know, you learn a lot about different cultures and different regions of the world, and it, it can really relate itself back to wine when you're learning about Bordeaux and you know the history of Bordeaux in a grander scheme. It's easy to fit the pieces in wine-wise if you already have that background. Which is, so it's been, history major was, was great. I read a lot of maps and looked at a lot of maps all through college and grad school and high school and uh, still do now, so. What happened in the wake of that, you know, you're being asked to hit the highway? Interestingly, I just come back from Napa, uh, like literally a week after, or two weeks after coming back from Napa from the first time is when they uh, gave me my walking papers, gave me a little bit of severance, so I didn't freak out and like, you know, do anything really crazy. Um, I, I found a couple kind of odd jobs. I did some technology recruiting for about eight months, which was not what I'm meant to do in any way, shape, or form. What does a technology recruiter do? Uh, you basically, and keep in mind, frame this in uh, April of 2000, well, I guess by this, this point, you're in the middle of the summer of 2008. So you're essentially finding people for jobs that don't exist. You know, when recruiting, I guess, is really good and going, and you have 30 jobs to fill, and you have 32 people to fill them with, it's, it's a pretty good gig. At that time, not a good gig. Um, and you're begging people to quit their job that's stable. And they're like, why do you want me to quit my job to go? Like, you're insane. So it was, it was a hard, it was a hard road. Um, but it got me working in Manhattan, which ended up being good. And then, uh, that company started to go under, but I saw the signs there. I was smart enough at that point, use a little experience and be like, wow, this is, it's not good. Uh, I'm going to Napa for a while. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I was like, I got to book another vacation, spend all my money. It's perfect. Um, so I decided to get back into bartending, and then that move, people like to drink during economic bad times. People are always drinking. You can always sell booze. Um, I got really lucky. I went on a bunch of interviews, and then finally got hired by the person who's now my wife. That's uh, how we met. She interviewed me, hired me. And At least then, somebody likes you, huh? I, yeah, I mean, I got lucky, right? Interestingly, she made me quit after about three months, basically giving the ultimatum, if we're going to date, you can't work here. So hold um, on there. <laughs> You're covering that kind of quick. So what was that interview like? Uh, the interview was interesting. Uh, it was very fast. Um, I think we obviously had a good connection in the interview. The, uh, the general manager, she was the assistant general manager at the restaurant, and the general manager was the first person to come out. This is like an open call interview that a lot of New York people are familiar with, um, where a bunch of people show up and they get sort of cattle called, interviewed. And uh, the first person had gotten there maybe two or three minutes before me. And the general manager, who's this really great guy that we, you know, we've built a bit of a friendship since I worked for him, comes out and you can tell that he is sort of a, a type that he likes to hire for bartending positions. And I don't fit that type. So he was like, oh, who's first? And I right away pointed to the other guy sitting next to me. And I was like, that guy. <laughs> So he went in an interview, clearly didn't get hired. And then this very pretty young assistant general manager comes out. And she's like, oh, who's next? And I was like, oh, that's me for sure. Uh, and then we had a brief interview. She'd gone to school upstate New York. That's where I'd gone uh, to college as well. So we had like a- You interviewed her essentially. You're like, so where'd you go to school? Exactly. You know, it worked, and it, it worked out. She hired me. She called me the next couple, couple days later and offered me a job. And then uh, things kind of went from there. But does that story imply some level of street smarts? To read a situation and be like, you know, I think I'd rather interview with this person. Uh, I, I think so. You know, I, I maybe call it luck, but I think if, yeah, you roll the dice and be like, okay, that's not my best shot. My Whoever comes out next can't be less likely to hire me than this guy. And and the general manager of this restaurant is awesome. And it's, I, you know, hold no ill will to his hiring practices or whatever. But I think, you know. Are you essentially saying that he liked to hire women? 
Like good-looking women? I think that's, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out what we're talking about. Yes, yeah, yeah. He likes I mean, to that's hire... a common thing, I think. Yeah, totally. And it yeah. totally makes sense. So. So then you realize you had feelings for this person. Yes. Not the general manager, obviously, right. but the yeah. assistant general manager. And how did that start to manifest itself? You know, I, th- I think there was a little bit of flirtation at work, um, but we're both kind of professionals. I was really in need of a job, so I wasn't really necessarily willing to sacrifice my job for a relationship at the time. I wasn't really looking for a relationship. So more that's looking. what you did, though, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it took a couple months. Um, we went out a few times, hung out a few times, and things clearly were building towards a relationship. And she didn't fire me on the spot. Technically, she didn't fire me, uh, but made it pretty clear that if we were going to date, I needed to find another job. It would have been um, good if she fired you. You could have gotten unemployment. You know, yes. Maybe next time you get involved with one of these surreptitious relationships, you'll heed my advice. Yeah, you know? maybe, you know. You could have had a free six months off, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I I'm gonna I had take just back been my off. statement on the street smarts. Right? I, you know, I had just been off for, for a little while, so, you know, I was I was ready to keep working. <laughs> and what was, I mean, so then, of course, you had to find a job again. Yeah. So how did that come So. Out? It, for the first time in my career here in New York, I f- did some research and really found a job that I wanted and kind of went after it. And sort of any connection, which at this point, it was barely any that I had, I uh, I sent out and was like, I want this job. Can you help me? Can you help me? And Remember that was, when I tried to recruit you for that technology yeah, yeah, firm? It, exactly. You know, that the cold calling experience came in, uh, came in handy. But it, so it was the bar manager at Oriole when it moved from the townhouse to 42nd Street. Um, they basically hired a whole new staff. And in my mind, being 30 at the time and being a little bit behind the eight ball um, experience-wise, I knew that and I wanted to work an opening thinking that the natural attrition of a restaurant opening would allow me advancement, if not immediately within a year or two years, or you know, it would allow me to move up quickly or faster than normal. Which I think um, is entirely true, usually. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, in hindsight, it, it proved to be correct. So they were willing to give me a shot. I don't, you know, in some ways, I don't really know why they, they thought that I'd be a good fit. They offered me the position. I accepted. Um, I almost blew it, which was awesome. I think it was my second interview. I don't remember the exact circumstances. Um, I couldn't, I was going from my current job to go fill out some paperwork or, or whatever it was. And uh, I couldn't get out of work fast enough bar got popped and we were super busy or, or something. And when I showed up at Oriole, uh, everyone was gone. And I basically had to like immediately beg for my job even before I had already started, um, which was not good. And anyone who knows the general manager there, who's an amazing guy as well, um, isn't the most forgiving human um, I've ever met. Um, in, in almost the best way, his standards are super high, but I was really sure that I had just blown it. Um, but you know, luckily, or, you know, I, they gave me another shot. And Was he whispering to you? Because when he whispers, that means he's really fucking pissed. I yes. Found. He, <laughs> yes. The, yeah. the quieter he gets, the more, yeah, the more scary he becomes for sure. Um, but his, you know, he probably is going to hate me for saying this. When, when he smiles and he's having a good time, there's nothing more contagious than that for sure. And then that's, you know, the, the opposite ends of the spectrum with him are, are very dire, I think. And you don't, you definitely want to be on one end and you definitely don't want to be on the other end. So two years, what was that like? Uh, it was great. You know, my, I started as bar manager. I got promoted to sommelier seven, eight months later. Again, not really sure why they thought that I would fit that role well, but um, they, they luckily saw something that hopefully I, I paid back. Um, it was a great experience. It was a really fun place to work. Um, I learned a ton the wine director there was an amazing kind of teacher for my first sommelier position. Did you guys bro down a little bit? We did at times. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There was there were some uh, bottles open in the cellar from time to time, and there was uh, liquid education. Yeah, he, he, and he, especially being a lover of Burgundy, he was as well. And a lot of my foundation in, in what I like in Burgundy certainly comes from him. And you know, the beginning of forming my own palate certainly starts with him. It was great. He, you know. Looking back, there are definitely things that I wish I could have done better. That's usually a good sign. Yeah. You know, when someone's like, oh, I, you know, because the people who aren't very good don't say that. Yeah. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, you know, 
but it allowed me, you know, they allowed me to work as hard as I could and as hard as I wanted to, which is great. There are no limitations into what I was could try to accomplish. And there was always somebody there to like either keep pushing or to be like, hey, maybe you should slow down. And, you know, the nature of the restaurant with the bar room and the dining room and the separation there, and then also where it is on 42nd Street, you would meet the whole range of guests and you, you get really used to kind of really trying to size up a table and figuring out what would make them happy very quickly because, you know, what they were wearing or where they came from was never an indication of, you know, what kind of wine they wanted or what kind of experience at the restaurant they wanted. And I think that has carried over in a huge way in my career currently. You get all kinds of EMP. All kinds. Yeah. We get from the most amazing people who saved an entire year to come have dinner and they want to have something really special once in a lifetime all the way to, you know, it's Tuesday night and some guy and his wife are having dinner and that's just their Tuesday night dinner. Expectations and what those people want out of their experience are super different. And it's really important to identify that and to figure out what kind of experience somebody wants, what kind of nuance they're looking for. So between those two groups, as an example, what do they tend to want? The person who this is like their one big experience, they want to see the whole show. They want to see every trick you have, every dish, every explanation. They want to hear every bit about the experience because they want to soak it all in. They want they want to be immersed in what in everything we do, especially if it's an anniversary or something like that. They want to take away if it's only one memory. They want to take away like one thing from the restaurant they can hold on to for a year, two years, a lifetime, whatever, whatever it is to say that when they ate 11 Madison Park, X happened or it was X, you know, whether it's a tour of the kitchen or we port tongue bottles of wine, anything like that, or the Manhattan cart with, when we make a Manhattan table side, it's, you know, and it's hard to figure out exactly what it, what that is, but that's, that's our job to figure out what it's going to take to create that memory. And less bells and whistles for the people who come once a week. Yeah, you know, generally speaking, they if they're coming all the time, it, it's very much you know, like you deliver great, seamless service, great wine, great food, and you sort of you sort of let them have have their own experience of themselves a little bit. And they get to probably express more of their proclivities. Yes, like yeah. this is the kind of water I like. You should have it ready for me. Like, exactly that yeah. kind of stuff, right? Exactly. You know, it sounds like the first group is harder. But sometimes the second group is harder because it's sometimes their expectations change over time. Yeah, I mean, I think they're both difficult in very different ways, um, and both are rewarding in very different ways. You know, to get an email from a guest who you may never see again saying, "Hey, this was the best dinner of my entire life," is one of the most rewarding things you can have in my position. But then at the same time, to have someone come back, you know, whether it's once a week or once a month, or you know, even if it's once a year on their anniversary or whatever it is, is also like super rewarding. You get to build that connection and develop a relationship with someone. And that's super rewarding as well. So let me see if I understand correctly. Your wife is somewhat high powered in a restaurant and doing well in a management role. Does that give you an example to kind of work towards yourself? Does that in your own career at that point? Because that's when things really start to turn around, right? Like all of a sudden you're progressing at Oriol, you're getting promoted, you're getting moved up, you're moving over to EMP later. Did you look at her example and say, well, maybe I should get my shit together and act like this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think she is an inspiration for sure. I, I think no one has her shit more together than she does, which is amazing. And it's, you know, I think as my career has progressed, we're able to draw inspiration from each other. Which is, which is amazing to have a partner that like pushes you and makes you better and makes you not necessarily work harder, but you see, you see the fruits of your labor, you know, together and you're able to progress in the, in your industry together. That's awesome. Did you feel like she would respect you more if you achieved more? I felt like she wouldn't dump me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think there's definitely a point in my life and I don't remember if she said it or if I was reading between the lines, but she definitely didn't want to date a loser bartender for sure. And so that was a spur for you. Yeah. 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 What did happen on those two years? I mean, what else did you pick up? Speed of service. I think the pace at a restaurant where there's two sommeliers doing, you know, 400 covers in a night, you learn how to have really impactful moments very quickly and how to have very, not necessarily deep conversations, but conversations where a lot transpires in as few words as possible. Because, you know, you can feel like the eyes of another guest burning in the back of your skull, you know, waiting for you to pay attention to them. And also, and I think this is the most important thing that I hope I accomplish is that when I'm standing at a table talking to someone, they know that I'm talking to them and I'm not thinking about 
some other guest or some some other task that I have to do and that you're 100% present with them. I mean, that's something that I, that I learned there because you you know as soon as you start to wander mentally or your eyes start to wander, guests can tell and you're also not going to do your job as well. Even though you have a thousand things to do, you have to be 100% focused at that one table while you're there. I find as the check average goes up, the guest expects that more and more. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. And again, both kind of putting both groups, the person who, you know, maybe isn't spending that much, they definitely don't want to feel like you don't care about them. And then the person who is spending a ton of money feels entitled to feel like they're 100% your priority. And both groups are right. Each table, every single table serves to get 100% of your attention. So what was the transition from Oriol to EMP? So I think, you know, like I said before, when I looked at Oriole and tried to find uh, that specific job, it came to a point at Oriole where I was like, okay, not that I've learned everything that I could, my learning curve had gone from like so incredibly steep and I was learning like 50 new things every single day and it was like super overwhelming to it being like, okay, I'm still learning, but there's a whole nother world of wine and service and guests and, you know, restaurant culture in general that I want to be immersed in, where can I go to do that? And I did a lot of research, a lot of looking at wine lists and looking at who like wine directors were and where I wanted to work, the type of company I wanted to work for. And I kind of made a really short list. And 11 Madison Park was, I want to say the only restaurant on the list, but certainly at the top of the list. And I decided that was the job that I was going to pursue. And that's the job that I wanted. And since I had a job, I had the liberty of not having to rush and not having to leave a job or take something that I didn't want um, and basically wait it out. So what were the things about EMP that stood out for you when you made those decisions? I think the culture of EMP was really important. It's, it's a culture that's sort of always changing and always pushing forward. And from the inside or the outside, you know, change is really hard and it's you're constantly being judged on the changes you're making. But for me, that was more important than always doing the same thing and kind of sticking to like a formula or a pattern of service or however you want to define it and just sticking with that. So that was important just for my own sense of, of well-being. I, I like being challenged and doing something different all the time is really challenging. So I like that. I think the wine list sort of, at least at, hopefully still now, but at least at that time spoke for itself. I think it's one of the best comprehensive wine lists in the country or the city. Or And so that was important for me. I wanted to work with all regions of the old world specifically, but all regions of the world and continue learning I like the team atmosphere. So at Oriole, there were two of us, two and a half of us, generally two full-time sommeliers and then a part-time sommelier. I live in Madison Park. I think when I joined the team, there was a wine director and five sommeliers. Now there's a wine director and six sommeliers. So being a part of that team and having like that collaborative atmosphere, constantly having knowledge to exchange and learning from each other was super important to me. And then the culture of the restaurant in general, that idea of pushing each other to be better and pushing the boundaries of what fine dining service can be and what what we can accomplish on a daily basis was really exciting for me. When we think of the most lauded restaurants, there is an element where they're not supposed to change, right? Like they are traditional. This is the traditional Japanese restaurant. This is the traditional French restaurant. They're at the high end, but they're doing the things that are expected of them at the high end. But that doesn't often imply like a lot of flux. I totally agree with that. And I think that's what drew me to EMP is that there is a lot of change. I mean, even the last few years, going from a la carte menu to a prefix menu to the grid menu to tasting menu only to sort of the shorter tasting menu, family style elements that we have now. That was a lot just listening to that. That was yeah. a lot. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's more than just my tenure. It's in, you know, six, six or seven years or eight years now. But those things in, you know, redefining, and this sounds lofty, but redefining what fine dining can be is a really interesting task and a really interesting thing to be a part of. Um, and I think there are so many elements of our service now that are not traditional to fine dining and that are really different. And some people, some of our guests have sort of a hard time doing it. And if they're trying, if they're resistant, it can be a little more challenging. But, you know, we're lucky that a lot of people are like, okay, yeah, we're, we're along for the ride. Let's see what you got and we'll go along with it. And that's super fun. What are examples of that? I think the way we are table side is really interesting. I think we're much more casual, much more free flowing than a lot of fine dining restaurants and our personalities show. And there's a lot of, you know, self-expression, you know, I, I, the best way I can describe 
sort of our, our goal is, you know, we certainly have a box that we want to have our captains and servers and sommeliers in, but when anything you do within that box is up to you, you know, it's not a scripted speech. It's not, you know, you're not told a bunch of things and then have to regurgitate it word for word. There's certainly goals in our service that we have, but how you get there is open to self-interpretation, which is super fun. And I think the more genuine you are as a service professional, the more honest and the more yourself you are, the better service you're providing to guests. I think in a lot of industries and in the restaurant industry is no different. When you're bullshitting someone, they can tell you're bullshitting. And when you become a waitron and turn on your waiter voice and have your waiter stance and your waiter mannerisms, people can tell that you're not a real person and that you're just there to wait on them. Whereas if you can be a real person, you can make a real connection with someone, impact their meal in a real genuine way. And that to me is the basics of hospitality. And if you can do those things being yourself and also do it with a warmth and a selflessness that it creates service as well. And and then if you take that and add like a precision and kind of aspect to it where things are really precise and really attempting to be perfect, I think then you have the makings, even though it's casual and it's fun and it's free flowing, you have great fine dining service. That seems like that would be uh, pretty hard for a lot of people. I mean, I feel like a lot of people who end up as captains at fine dining restaurants often didn't grow up at fine dining restaurants. They don't have a lot, especially Americans, don't have a lot of experience with what fine dining is until they're serving in it often. So I I feel like because that's true, because people come to it from the outside, they often kind of go with some idea of what it's supposed to be like. And that happens over and over again. So coming up with something like authentically them, that's still going to work in that model seems like that would be really difficult. It's it's certainly a challenge. You know, it's interesting. You you say that and you see certain mannerisms almost more than anything else. Like the, when you're pouring water and you have your arm behind your back, you know, like in a 90 degree angle, I think is certainly one of those things that that's the people think that that's like something you do when you pour water at a fine dining restaurant. And there are people who I work with who certainly do that. And it's great. That's what they feel comfortable doing. You know, like I said, self-expression, like that's totally fine. Then there's other people who don't do that. And that's also totally acceptable you know, as long as you're pouring water directly into the glass and not onto the tablecloth, you know, at the end of the day, it's totally fine. But it, you're right. I think there, most people who end up being a waiter or a captain in a fine dining restaurant did not grow up going to them and, and understanding what it was all about. I think there is definitely a shift now. You know, it, it's really interesting seeing like 22-year-old CIA graduates or, you know, Cornell graduates or whatever, wherever they're from, knowing at 18 that they wanted to work in a fancy restaurant is really weird because, you know, even though I've ended up here when I was 17, 18, 19, 20, you know, 26, certainly didn't have that goal. And those people have such a leg up on where I was. I mean, when I was 26, if if I had half the knowledge that they do now at 22, who knows where I'd be. It's crazy to see people with that kind of drive at that early age to work in a restaurant. It sounds like the opposite of your life. Yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So how do you respond to that? I, I think you, you have to take that energy and that enthusiasm and let it mature and let it grow and you know, not feel threatened by it, even though I think in a lot of ways that's what a lot of people feel like. And there are some days where I'm like, wow, this 22-year-old kid knows way more about everything that I do restaurant-wise. And you know, I, I think you, you need to make sure that you're, nurturing that and cultivating it and and encouraging it for sure. I think there's also a certain need for life experience and you can't have just an entire restaurant full of CIA graduates that sort of learn the same thing and kind of grew uh, in the same system. I think in any business, you need people with different backgrounds and different, different ways of getting to the same point. That diversity is super important. Life experience probably helped you as you move more into a role of a manager, right? Because you have some empathy. You can be like, oh, well, this happened. You know, this is what happens when people do this, that kind of thing. So as that happened to you, as you move from a floor sommelier to wine director, what was the progression for you and what did you draw? I've been lucky that I've had some pretty good role models, both wine director-wise and also management-wise, my wife certainly but I will say the hardest transition I've had to do in my career is going from sommelier to wine director, basically going from hourly employee to manager. Management is super difficult and people who are good at it, they have a skill that is incredible and it's hard to teach. It's hard to spot, you know, and it, it you can only get there, I, I think, by maturity. But age, even though I'm one of the elder statesmen at the restaurant, um, I, I don't think I'm the best manager by any means because I haven't been doing it for that long. 
And how um, old are you exactly? 36. So most of the people at EMP are less than 36? Oh, yeah. Much less. I would say the average age is 26. I'd be surprised. And what is drawing them to the restaurant? Is it just the ratings or is there something else that's particularly drawing that kind of youth? I think it's the ratings for sure. I think people want to work at, quote unquote, the best restaurant. I think there's a certain, our culture is out there a little bit. And we have like a, an image of what we are as a restaurant internally that I think people are really attracted to. I think it's certainly when you look at having a long-term career, I think having EMP on your resume is is an amazing thing. And, you know, people want that. And, you know, just in the same way as the French Laundry was 10, 12 years ago, you know, you saw those people kind of go everywhere. And then per se, Danielle, like those restaurants have spawned so many incredible restaurant professionals. I think we're sort of the same way. I think a lot of people view us as a stepping stone, whether it's a year, two years, three years, four years, you know, and then going on to do, you know, their open a restaurant or be general manager or be a wine director somewhere else. EMP certainly helps you achieve those goals. So when you're dealing with people who are 26 and younger, how do you focus that energy? What are the easy parts? What are the hard parts? Constantly having a common goal is the most important thing. And having someone for people to band together and reach for as, as a group, I think is if you can treat people as individuals, but also group them into one unit, you can achieve amazing things. Whereas if everyone is out for themselves and everyone has personal goals that don't jive with a greater goal, you end up with a bunch of individuals working for themselves. Whereas I think that's something that from our, our leadership and the owners of the restaurant have done an amazing job of providing goals for the restaurant, whether it was three Michelin or four New York Times or now number one Pellegrino, you know, having a goal is more important than the actual goal, at least in my mind. Like, obviously I want to be in the number one restaurant in the world. That's like, it's a super lofty and kind of high flutin goal to have, but you know, you gotta have a goal, but having something that we can talk about and framing, you know, why does the napkin need to be replaced as soon, soon as someone gets up and make sure that they don't, they have a napkin when they come back to sit down, you know, if you're just framing it in the, that's just what we do, it can be done. And that's a powerful way to do it. But if you can frame it in the terms of a greater goal and a greater good, and, you know, almost framing it in the way like you're letting your teammates down, let alone letting the guests down because they get to the table and there's no napkin, but you're letting, letting our goal drop is a really powerful way and a powerful motivator. And I think for me in restaurants, motivation to be really good at your job, um, can be a really hard thing to find, you know, and I think as we're evolving into a no tipping society, or at least in certain aspects of our industry are, are going no tipping, you're going to see stratifying the, the industry where you have people who are in it for the money and people who are in it for service and for providing an experience for guests. And that's going to be something that's really different. You know, people who are in it for the money, I think you're going to see less good service. And I think restaurants will offer less good service on a grand scheme. And then you'll have restaurants populated by hopefully the people that we have at 11 Madison Park, which are people that really love service and aren't in it for the dollar. And the, the fact that we're not getting tips doesn't matter because we want to provide amazing service for people so they have an amazing experience. But it sounds like to you personally, motivation or lack of motivation has been what's going on with your life story at any given time. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think, you know, there, I've been motivated by very different things. And there's definitely been times in my, when I was younger than I was motivated by making a buck at the end of the night and what I could do with that dollar, you know, the next day and how I could spend it. And now my, I'm much more motivated by my career and being successful and achieving something more than just filling my bank account. And I think that's, it helps me go to work every day, not think about the finances. But on that point, I mean, sometimes I feel that we are really developing a waiter class now. We're asking people to be all in on this job, where in a way before we said, well, you're an artist, but you can come in and do some shifts at the bistro. You, you can care enough, but you don't have to like change your whole life, you know? And I feel like increasingly the ask from a restaurant, now obviously you're at a very refined and high-end spot, but I, I see it even further down where the ask is, it's supposed to come from your soul. You're not supposed to just be one of these regular people who wants to make money, and it, that seems like a very different ask than, hey, you know, I know that you're an actor, you go to Broadway, but you also need to eat, so you want to do a couple shifts. So that seems like a kind of a demographic change on a pretty big level. I think that 
kind of old standard of you can be a waiter or a writer and be a waiter um, still exists and still going to exist because it, it is a career and a job that you can do it, at certain places without putting too much of yourself out there. But I think more and more people want service in a restaurant. And they the only way someone can provide really good service is if they actually care. And you can only fake it to a certain point. And I'm, I'm sure I've worked with people in the past who have been amazing and actually have provided great service and have totally faked it. Um, and that's fine if they can get away with it. But I think more and more you're seeing people can see through the bullshit and people want authentic people waiting on them. And if you don't actually care about providing good service, you're, you can only do it short term. And, you know, it's, it's, I, to me, it's one of the reasons that the restaurant industry has always been so transient and you see people jump around from one restaurant to another, to another, to another, because eventually you get burned out by faking it in one specific way, one restaurant, and then you just go to another restaurant and then you can sort of start and do your shtick again and fake it there for a little while. And then eventually you move on new set of customers, new set of people, but the truly great wait staff, you know, and there's some at every, I mean, every restaurant has at least one person that's really great. There are people that actually care and people that want to provide service. So I guess now the difference for you is that you're in a position where your input is affecting who gets hired. And so you have to look for those characteristics as opposed to just hope that your coworkers have them at any given time. So when that's true now, what do you look for? Coming back to the same thing, when you're interviewing someone, someone who's not, who's not bullshitting you, someone who you try to get past the, that first initial like interview kind of fakeness and try to get to a real person. But right now, that's, that's certainly a huge part of my job and what we're doing at 11 Madison Park and The Nomad um, is trying to figure out how to hire better, how to find better people, how to market ourselves to a higher quality of employee. Not that we have low quality employee, but, you know, I think as you expand and, you know, our, our expansion has been announced recently, you know, we're constantly looking for the best possible people we can find and having better ways to interview, better ways to track candidates, better ways to track employees once we've hired them is something that's going to be super important. And I think taking initiative and taking inspiration from other companies and big successful companies is something that we're, we're looking to do and seeing how other companies that have expanded have done it and done it successfully is really important. I think one of the things that restaurants struggle with in general is that sort of HR thing. Um, whereas, you know, especially if you're only one restaurant, generally you don't have an HR person. That's your general manager or your service director, somebody that's been given a crash course in it and is trying to figure it out, you know, and really and for us focusing on that is really important for the most part. And I can't speak for everyone. People are pretty happy to do their jobs there. And if it wasn't a sense of positivity, they wouldn't be happy. And you would be able to feel that in the dining room, which would mean that we're not achieving our goals as a restaurant at the same time. What's the adrenaline situation like? I mean, is there big rushes? Do people feed off of it? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we're, we're in a really fortunate place where we have not necessarily celebrities, but, you know, definitely like food celebrities and wine celebrities in the restaurant on a regular basis. Chefs on the Pellegrino list or Michelin starred chefs, you know, there, there are celebrities that come in from time to time. So there is definitely like a buzz in the restaurant and there's certainly an energy. And, you know, I think there's, when someone really important or somebody that that provides a buzz, there's definitely adrenaline that goes on. And, you know, I think people deal with it in different directions and different ways. For the most part, it adds like a really sense of positivity to the restaurant. You know, when someone really, they were really excited comes in, that adrenaline, like often those are our best services because everyone's like really pumped up and it provides, you know, we talk about having goals and using those goals to provide like a way to make service the best. That also works for sure to have someone we really want to impress or someone we really want to have a really extra good time at the restaurant adds a sense of adrenaline. How do you you personally deal with adrenaline? I'm sort of a nervous person by by nature, so I internalize it a lot. I think adrenaline is something that I that I really enjoy. I, I played sports and what I would like to think is a pretty high level at one point in my life. So adrenaline really boosts me in a really good way. It has certainly taken me the other direction in those those days or when I've you know. Had, screamed at someone or, you know, made someone not feel that great about themselves for making a pretty minor mistake. Um, those are my shortcomings. 
But for the most part, adrenaline is something that I thrive on and that I love. And I love taking care of, you know, whether it's a Pellegrino voter or a food critic or, you know, whoever, you know, a famous chef or, you know, another sommelier, something that I really enjoy. I think that I've been really successful at. So for me, adrenaline is like the best. And hopefully when I'm feeling that, it's contagious and the staff can feed off of it, especially in, and I've, I've worked really hard on making sure that it's positive, although it hasn't always been. Is this a group that, you know, gets together for birthdays and celebrates anniversaries together? And, and Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and like I said at the beginning, I, I sort of stay out of it for the most part. And there are times when I'll choose to go out and, and have some drinks with people. But it is definitely a culture that, like, goes out in, in waves together. And you'll see, you know, at the end of each night, there's a handful of people that go out to our local watering hole. You know, before our holiday party, there's a big dinner that happens that's sort of planned by the staff. There's every day we're closed. You would think that like people would want to get away from each other, but it's it's like the opposite. And people are like, no, no, we're having a party here. And every like the whole entire staff goes. One of the amazing things that, that I've seen, which I haven't seen as much, there's always a few people that bridge the gap between the kitchen and the dining room. But at EMP, there really is like a joining of the staffs. You'll see a lot of kitchen guys and girls go out with the dining room guys and girls. And it's really one team and not two separate entities of a restaurant. And that's really special. You know, you don't see that at a lot of restaurants. You see, mostly you see a, a very strict divide where the people that work in the kitchen hang out amongst themselves. The people who work in the dining room hang out around amongst themselves. And there's a few kind of interlopers from each. They can kind of bridge the gap. Here, it's the opposite. The ones that don't bridge the gap are the oddballs. And I, I think that's really cool and really powerful. And something that, you know, I, I wish you would see more in restaurants because having those relationships, I, I know it's going to sound crazy, but having a close kitchen and dining room team makes the food taste better. So I understand what you said about constant evolution, but why has the menu format changed so many times? I mean, what's the actual reason why it's changed so many times? I think it's what Chef and Will are interested in and what they think our diners would like to see. So, you know, I think it's also evolving from a greater vision that they had at the beginning that you couldn't necessarily go from one extreme to the next without having some steps in between. You know, the menu now, having been cut down from 14 to about eight courses, I think people are, are starting to maybe push away from extended, long tasting menus that take all night and want a few shorter courses. You know, we've never heard as a complaint or as a statement, be like, wow, I wish we could have had like 14 more courses. But you you hear pretty frequently, man, I wish I could have had more of X. And that's something that we're trying to deliver as having a little bit more of fewer things that people can enjoy. And I think allowing people to have a two and a half hour dinner instead of a three and a half hour, hour dinner is great. But the people who want to have like a four or five, six hour dinner can certainly still do that. And I think that's having that flexibility is really great. So what about the wine side of that? I mean, has what the wine program does have to shift? I think our sommeliers provide a really good service to people by not only being themselves and being excited about different wines. And if, if you sit with one sommelier and you sit with another one two weeks later, eat the same food, you could have a very different wine experience. Hopefully two really great wine experiences, but both sommeliers will recommend different things, have different logics for, for why they're recommending those wines, have an equally great experience, just a very different one. And that's, that's super powerful. And, you know, and that's sort of goes back about, like I said, about expressing yourself and being yourself in service. And I think for me, a lot, a big part of that is making sure that the sommeliers have wines that they can get excited about. It's sort of every price point. You know, if you're excited about Corsica, making sure that there's not two Corsican wines on the list and you're just constantly selling those, you have some options, different price points, and then always listening to them and like trying to pick up on regions that they're excited about. And, and then going out and sourcing those wines. Do you see that changing a lot? I mean, have we been in kind of a bit of a flux time for exciting regions? Yeah, I think there's always, you know, in some ways are, are great at trying to drum up interest for up and coming wine regions, which is awesome because there's so many, there's much more amazing wine today than there's ever been before. The quality of the wine has gone up, where it's coming from has grown exponentially, and the availability of it has also grown. Finding new wines is certainly a, a fun aspect. Personally, I, I love finding amazing value wines from established regions. Although I think I have 
passion for new and upcoming regions. I love like the classic regions of the world and love finding sort of the values, whether it's a wine that's declassified or a cuvee of young vines from a great producer or something like that. Or, you know, if it's in Burgundy, the sort of outlier regions and finding like the great producers that make those wines. That's what I'm excited about. Whereas a lot of sommeliers and a lot of other people are excited about wines from Bulgaria or dry wines from Hungary or wherever it may be. I like digging deeper into the classic regions of the world. So how do you see the wine market right now? I mean, what's going on in the life of a high-powered buyer now? The biggest challenge is that the really great wines that we're after, there's not enough of. And, you know, there's so much the the knowledge and the number of sommeliers has increased so fast in the last, you know, even five years. It, it's insane. And, and people are always after the same wines and things become super allocated and get your two bottles and then you're like what do you do with the two bottles you put them on the list you save them so you know first world problems for sure but um but they are your problem yeah yeah totally and you know and there there's that that ego and arrogance i'm like i deserve those wines more than anybody else and you know which is not actually true so that's sort of one of the one of the things that's always going on is trying to find the wines that we want and the wines that everyone wants but i think certainly Finding, you know, we talked about before, finding those like new wines and finding new regions and wines, new wines from existing regions and staying on top of that. That's for me, especially when you talk about value, like, you know, any, any wine buyer can go and buy a couple bottles of Rousseau and stick them on your list and be like, I have an amazing list. Look at, look at all this expensive burgundy that I have, but finding stuff that, you know, if you want to spend 70, 80 bucks on a list and, you know, those are the challenges that I, that I really enjoy and finding value in that is where I get a lot of satisfaction having and offering that value at EMP, even in the sort of lofty settings that we have, is something that I think all of our sommeliers derive a lot of satisfaction from. Are we at a point where customers expect a wine program to have certain things? You know, it's hard to know, again, being being in the sort of bubble at EMP for two reasons. First, we have most things. Um, there are definitely certain regions of the world, and we get a lot of flack for we don't have anything from South America, nothing from South Africa. The Argentinians must love that. Argentinians are not happy. You know, our our section of Spanish wines is not inclusive. You know, it's I think basically Lopez or Heredia at this point, and that's it. So all the cultures that get really pissed when you don't have the wines on the list, you don't have the wines on the list. Yeah, I like to get yelled at. I'm a little <laughs> bit of a masochist. Yeah, Just trying you to know, understand. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, for us, it's, it's the, you can't have everything all the time sort of thing. And there's so many other regions in the world that we try to stay really strong in. And it's not that those regions are lesser regions. They're just regions that we're not focused in. But yeah, I think every guest has a different expectation of what they want. If some, it's really simple that they want something under $75, you know, and whatever it is sort of is fine, but has to be under $75. Like that's, that's what they want. And somebody else may want 1985 vintage Bordeaux and that's what they're really into. And you, you know, they hope that you have, or expect you to have some options. And we try to, we try to have as much as possible for everyone within the limitations that we sort of set. And, you know, it, anyone can walk in the door at any point in time. What about the sommelier scene in the city? I mean, what do you think about it from your vantage point? So, you know, we talked about this a little before. I, I've sort of removed myself a little bit from it. So I'm not out in the scene very much. I don't do, you know, I think all the sommeliers in New York know that there's there's a serious like lunch scene where there's wineries, they're having lunches every day. And I, I try to stay away from that as much as possible um, just because I'm busy at work. So I don't get out with a lot of sommeliers, but the people that I do interact with and the tastings I do go go with, I'm always amazed at the amount of knowledge and amount of passion and interest within within each other that people have. I wish I had more time to spend more time with, with other sommeliers. I think I, I'm certainly missing out on uh, an exchange of knowledge and an exchange of ideas that, that would make me better at my job. But, you know, fortunately, I, I tied into the restaurant in, in the most positive way. But yeah, I think sommeliers are an amazing group of driven people that are always interesting to talk to. Sometimes conversations can be repetitive, I think, because um, we're so we're always talking about wine and it's hard to like separate, you know, when you get two sommeliers together, it's hard to like move away from wine talk, um, at least at first and, you know, in those first few meetings. But the, the level of intelligence and passion and knowledge is insane in New York. And I don't know, I don't spend that much time in other cities, but I would, I would be surprised if it was as good and as deep in 
maybe any other city on earth. I mean, it's the level of people here in New York and the amount of people at that level is crazy. So who are you at work? What do you draw on and who are you when you go to a table and when you interact with the staff? At a table and with the staff, I am a fairly serious person and my demeanor is, I think, at least at first and when you when I, my first interactions are more stiff and, you know, with not withdrawn, but, you know, I'm serious, I guess is the best, is the best word for it. Um, and then I, I'll feel a table out and let my personality out little by little if that's what I think the table wants. And I think I'm the same way with our staff. I think I, I hold myself as a professional and I have like, I always have like a very serious air about myself, but the people who have gotten to know me know that I think I'm funny. I don't know if they think I'm funny, but I think I'm funny. And, you know, I, I like to have a good time and I like to have fun. And I think that's certainly a very important part of work. If you're not going to work and having fun, you're not doing it right. And same thing, if you're going out to dinner, you're not having fun time, like you should have gone somewhere else. And, you know, if you can't let yourself have fun at dinner, you gotta, you gotta reevaluate. Dinner should be fun. So here you are following John Reagan and then following Dustin Wilson at EMP. And each of those had significant strengths and even national reputations. And you're more of an unknown and you have your own set of gifts. But how do you feel about that situation following those two people? I mean, big shoes to fill, especially back to back. You know, I think what John Reagan was able to accomplish like setting up the program, taking it from where it was when he started. And we're lucky that with the computer age, we have a lot of old wine lists saved from when, when he first started. And you can see like how the list evolved and what he was purchasing and what he was into the pricing, which is crazy uh, by our standards now to when Dustin came in and I started maybe less than six months after Dustin did and seeing the evolution of the list and getting, getting bigger getting more breadth and more vintage depth has been really, it's really amazing to see what those two accomplished and have been a part of it with Dustin and hopefully helped him in that process. It's huge shoes to fill. And they're two sommeliers that I think everyone should look up to. Um, and everyone could learn something from both in their knowledge, their service abilities, their ability to run a wine program. I mean, the wine program in EMP, I think is one of the ones and almost by default, because it's only been run by two people prior to me, is is insane at how well organized it is and how how professional it is. And I owe it to them. I owe my my position and the kind of what I'm able to do with the program is totally because of the way they set me up for success, even in John's case, without knowing that he was doing it for me. The next five years, what do you suspect is going to be important to you and to your growth? Uh, I mean, the most important thing is going to be the team that works with me. And growing with them and, and learning from people, especially the longer I stay at EMP, the more important it'll be to make sure I'm still getting information and, and learning from the outside and bringing people in that can teach me new things. Because, you know, I, I mentioned EMP definitely is a little bit of a bubble, both wine-wise, but also culturally. You know, we, we not that we're isolated, but we definitely do our own thing. But bringing people from the outside that can provide insight is super important. Cedric Nikase is making up for lost time, and he's trying to do it with a team. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Cedric Nikase, the wine director of 11 Madison Park in Manhattan. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.